Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Up this week, the docu-series, Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. I sit down with Suzanne Lavery, the series executive producer. A note to listeners, this podcast contains spoilers, so make sure to watch all three episodes of Sophie, A Murder in West Cork, and then come back and listen on. The murder of a French woman in the Irish countryside sets off a convoluted quest for justice that spans decades and cuts across national borders. A woman whose body has been found in a remote area in County Cork. The brutal murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier has shocked the public. She was a French lady. They were the last person spoke to her, except whoever saw her after me. Sophie du Plantier was among the social elite in Paris. For her, West Cork was a place to reflect. The region's first murder in living memory. We had no experience of serious crime. We were trying to think of neighbours and work out motives. We were afraid there was a murderer among us. La personne qui a fait ça devra assumer cet acte. No witness and no DNA. All we had was circumstantial evidence. On était abasourdis, tous. La police irlandaise a interpellé un suspect. He was reporting on the crime. He appeared at the crime scene. He was acting strange. So why did everyone think he was the murderer? Because he told people that he'd done it. Suzanne, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Very nice to meet you. First of all, I loved the documentary. I have a question, though, because... It seems to me, and you do touch on this, that West Cork itself is like a character in the story. Can you just talk a little bit about that region and what that region's character lends to this decades-long story? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things that drew us to the story in the first place. You know, it is one of the most beautiful parts of Ireland. It's completely rural. It's got a very slow pace of life. It's very open to artists and quite a sort of eclectic community of international people, quite rich people, local people who have been there for generations. Um, It's a real kind of retreat for a lot of people. I'm curious, what attracted you to this story? You know, as producers, you're always looking for stories that you can really get your teeth into and that might speak more broadly than the sort of narrative as it goes on. So this story in particular was completely multi-layered. Sophie herself was such a sort of luminous character. You know, she's beautiful, very glamorous. There's something about her physicality that just draws you in. And then when we dug into the story, it has a real duality about it. It's a crime, it's a murder where there has been resolution, but there hasn't been justice there's two sides fighting for their version of the truth, each of which believe themselves to be in the right 
So I actually wonder, though, I mean, I almost see three aspects to the story that I, I think about when I think about it. You know, there's Sophie's family, which we'll talk about in a second. Of course, there's Ian's version of events. But then there's also the Garda, which mm-hmm. has very much its own perspective as to what happened here and how they handled it. That's a big part of the story. And I think that so many decades out, it's really interesting to look at you know, the failings of an investigation and how it kind of led us where we are. How did you find it speaking to to those Garda about their work on this case? It's really interesting, actually, because I think the Garda have had a pretty hard time about it. And in some respects, quite rightly so. You know, the the crime scene was not kept clear. Huge bits of evidence like the gate went missing. Um as one of the contributors says, you know, how do you lose a gate? You know, it beggars belief. But at the same time, I think you have to bear in mind, you know, this was a crime in the most rural part of Ireland and they just weren't set up to have a murder inquiry. So the odds were really stacked against them, I think. Sophie's body was discovered about 10 o'clock in the morning. She'd obviously been exposed to the elements for probably about 12 hours. They weren't able to gather any DNA evidence. It was an outdoor crime scene, so it's you know difficult to secure. I think that the failure to gather DNA really put the investigation back by a long way. One of the things that's extremely interesting to me is how much of Sophie's family is represented in this story. What was it like, you know, talking with them, getting them to want to tell her story? Because they really, I think, add so much humanity to this film. Mm. Well, that was one of the most important things for us, was having the blessing of the family. It put a great weight of responsibility on our shoulders as well as um, filmmakers, because we really wanted to live up to the trust that they put in us. Um there's been a lot of interest in this case and a lot of people have tried to get access to them. So we felt really very privileged to have their trust. And they were absolutely delightful to work with. They were very open, very careful not to try and lead us in any direction. They really wanted to stand back and let us do our job um, as filmmakers and present the facts as we saw them and sort of follow our own research. So they really didn't try to sort of influence us in any way. There was no set of demands put on us by them, which we really appreciated, actually. It's very interesting to me, too, that Pierre-Louis, Sophie's son, really has, you know, he was very, very young when this murder happened. He was a teenager, right? And he uh, is really not just carrying it with him and trying to solve it, but has also built a community around trying to resolve this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, actually. The um, ASOF, the Association for the Truth About the Murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, um, they meet every month. It's made up of friends and family, and between them, there's a real dedication to finding justice that I think is really quite inspirational. You know, it obviously gives a support network to the members of the family, um, but they really have been relentless in seeking justice for Sophie. Unlike other stories like this, the suspect 
is more a part of the story than we may necessarily like want him to be. You know, if we if we want to tell a victim focused story, if we want to tell a story that's a mystery, it's not common for the suspect to be such a big part of the narrative of the story in terms of the legal proceedings, in terms of his kind of injecting himself uh, into different aspects of you know the media coverage and so forth. You have a lot of footage that your team shot of interviews with Ian Bailey himself. Speaking with your colleagues, I mean, what was your team's impression of him generally? Is that something you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we all agree he's he's a really complex character. He's a very smart, interesting man. At the same time, there's always a misgiving about who is this guy is he guilty? Are we becoming part of his spin? So it, it it was interesting to sort of try to get to know him, but at the same time, keep a distance and hmm. sort of walk an objective line. It's very disturbing the way he talks about the domestic violence in his history. Mm. I find it very disturbing. He does a thing that, you know, is sort of a known pattern of what are typically narcissistic abusers where he immediately goes to the, it was a two way street. It was, you know, and meanwhile he put his partner in great physical harm. She was injured. There's a lot of evidence that he was violent to her on multiple occasions, which is why it really struck me, you know, when he described Dermot Dwyer, the Garda detective superintendent on the case, he called Dermot a psychopathic criminal and mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like to me like Ian just is a is a projector. And I'm not saying he's a psych. I, I don't want to like go on the record saying I, Ian is a psychopathic criminal. I have my opinion. Uh, but it does seem like he just projects outward, projects outward, projects outward, blaming others for things that clearly he had either some role in or could have had some role in. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. Um you know, even with his confession to Billy Fuller, he talks in the third person. Um, and yeah, I mean, I find his lines about domestic violence absolutely chilling. It's not that I don't want to go back into them, but I mean, they are long past. On that occasion, she'd been drinking. We've both been drinking. I've uh, Maybe, I don't know what happened, but she started to grab me and I was pushing her back, and I hurt her in that process. I'd have to take full responsibility. But I mean, it does take two, you know, it, it, it takes two to sang, but I'm not trying to absolve my, my actions or, you know, at all. And we actually, that was something that we debated a lot about, you know, do we include it? Is he, could we be victim shaming Jules in this? You know, are we saying that, she was partly to blame, but I think when we were watching, we thought, no, the audience can draw their own conclusions. But but I think we had a, a viewpoint. If it's comforting for you to know, it was clear to me what was happening here. And, you know, I do think perhaps if he hadn't been so brazen about it, you know, you may have wanted to include some expert afterwards saying like many times abusers say this, but blah, blah, blah. No, but you didn't need that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a coldness there and he doesn't deny it. He doesn't in, for in any way say it didn't happen or try to minimize it. He just basically says it was her fault. And to me, that says a lot about, you know, the, the, if someone can tell a story that way, what other kinds of stories could they tell, if that makes sense? Yeah. I'm curious about Ian's boldness in the story uh, in covering it. He filed lawsuits. He spoke so frequently to the press. I mean, isn't that a great way to sort of 
display your potential innocence. Like I wouldn't be doing all of this if I were actually guilty. I'd be hiding. Yeah, you know, it's one of the most fascinating parts of the story is Anne's absolute desire to court the media and to 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 have the spotlight on him um you know it, it may be that he feels he's innocent it may be that he is innocent but what he certainly is is someone who enjoys being center stage hmm. even before the crime you know he was sort of notorious in the locale for sort of drawing attention to himself you know spiting poetry playing the boron in in the bars you know which is a sort of irish drum which apparently he wasn't very good at um <laughs> howling at the moon was another thing that he allegedly howling did. At the moon, um dancing with lesbians on the beach at full moon and you know <laughs> i mean yeah his i mean his own diaries are quite extraordinary do you have the impression that residents of Skull saw him in a negative light before the murder? Or did that opinion sort of form after the murder when they perhaps began to suspect him? I think that's a really interesting question. And it's one that leads into, you know, is he guilty? Isn't he guilty? Because I think a lot of people said that they felt quite negatively towards him anyway before the murder. Um and I think it was that sort of seeking attention, trying to put himself in the spotlight. Irish people don't necessarily react very well to that. Mm. And he was an Englishman in Ireland, which I'm sure sort of played a part in the proceedings. I think probably the domestic violence, which occurred just six months before the murder, probably tainted a lot of people's opinions of him as well. So he was on a slippery slope. What do you make of the inconsistencies between his recollection of events, especially in talking to people in the community, allegedly confessing to them? Um, There seems to be a lot of consistency between members of the community when they talk about what happened afterwards, but not a lot of consistency between Ian Bailey's version of it and theirs. Is this just a question of him painting it over? Is he lying? Does Does he maybe truly remember it differently? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, let, let's bear in mind, in Ireland, he's still a free man. He's a convicted killer in France, but in Ireland, he hasn't been tried and he is free and innocent. So we tried really hard to be objective about it. But his his version of events just, there are so many holes that don't stack up against what other people have said and so many witnesses who aren't necessarily friends, aren't necessarily part of the the same community whose stories matched and his didn't, Mm. you know. Um, So that certainly gives you pause for thought. A big theme in this case is the difference between the levels of proof you need for a conviction in different countries. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you can draw out for me and for the listeners about what the problem is with a case largely built on circumstantial evidence, especially in Ireland, and that versus direct evidence. Why is it hard to build a case on circumstantial evidence in Ireland? It's not hard other places. Certainly in the U.S., cases are won on circumstantial evidence all the time. There's a, a an onus on the sort of burden of proof, and there just wasn't enough evidence. There was no DNA evidence left, and there were no witnesses. So this, you know, however compelling the other evidence, it was all circumstantial. Um, 
in the view of the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions in Ireland, there just was not enough evidence to secure a conviction. And that's why he was never tried for murder in Ireland. Hmm. Although during that libel case, you know, more evidence was drawn out, right? And, yeah. and the DPP still decided not to prosecute. Can you talk about, about that? What do you make of that? I find the DPP report that was leaked um, completely sort of fascinating, quite shocking. When I read the report, I think, why is it biased so much in Bailey's favour? Is there an agenda here? Um, the DPP, you know, they're very well-respected individuals who shouldn't have any sort of bias for or against a potential defendant. So I find it utterly perplexing. Was he just charming? Do you think that could be it? Did he just charm them in some way? Because that is certainly also a common characteristic of somebody, you know, with the kind of personality that Ian seems to have, that sort of very Mm. narcissistic, grandiose Was there any aspect of that there, do you think? I don't know that it was charm. I think it's possibly less about Ian Bailey's character and more about the failings in the investigation. Had the investigation been run better, had they not lost the blood-spattered gate, had the crime scene been kept clear and not trampled over by lots of people in the immediate aftermath, um, had they recorded photographs of the scratches on his hands um had they done an identity parade you know I think there are lots of things that could have happened that didn't and I think there were just too many gaps for the DPP to take it further I will say one of the things I enjoyed that you did in the documentary was you really countered his claims by then just showed us things. So, you know, he claims to have gotten all these cuts on his arms and hands. One of the things he says he did was he cut down a Christmas tree. And then you show in the film that he just had this tiny little, like, Charlie Brown-style Christmas tree on his windowsill. Yeah. does not look particularly, uh, you know, threatening or like something that would cut you. And, you know, we also have the witness, um, Ariana, the Italian woman who was a house guest at Jules and Ian's home two days after the murder, she talks about taking a shower there, seeing the coat in the mm-hmm. bucket. So then you show us, you know, a creation of, of a coat in the bucket. Is that, does that really represent, you think, the experience? That, I mean, that he, it, it seems kind of brazen, you know, the idea that if, for instance, there were blood on his coat, that, that he would just do that and, and leave it there. Do you think that that's, that's true? Do you, I mean, do you, do, you, do you buy Ariana's take? I mean, she did come forward many years afterwards. She didn't come forward immediately, right? Yeah, I mean, I have no reason to doubt Ariana. Um, she she felt, you know, she she felt the need to come forward. I think when at at the time, she was quite young. She was a, basically a flatmate of Jules's daughter Ginny, and they lived mm. together um, in Dunleary, just outside Dublin. Um, and I think she kind of expected the Garda to come and interview her. You know, it, it was known that she was in the house at the time, so. That's another sort of gap in the investigation. But yeah, I think it is brazen. I think, you know, I think the bonfire in the back garden, you know, straight after the murder, that's pretty brazen. There's another uh, very famous Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer, uh, Mm -hmm. that has a man named Stephen Avery at the center. And I found myself thinking about that case while watching this because many of just the 
the circumstantial elements are there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ian just seems so much more willing to kind of brazenly explain away (laughs) the circumstantial uh, aspects of it. Meanwhile, Stephen Avery, in his case, is just like, I don't know. It wasn't me. I wasn't there when that happened. I don't know. That's very telling that, you know, it just seems so, so prepared to kind of discuss the bonfire, discuss the scratches, just like right at the ready, right? You know, he's a storyteller. He he anticipates questions and but yeah, he he apparently had a lot of answers. Although don't forget he did, you know, change his story hmm. about his whereabouts on the night of the, the murder. Um and I think when you put it all together, you know, he was there in a very rural location. He's a neighbour of Sophie's he has a, tra- a a sort of history of domestic violence. He's known to drink heavily and has been violent when drinking. Sophie is murdered at some point on the night of the 23rd of December. He's writing a, a, a report in his studio, which happens to be outside of the house. So he has no alibi for the night of the murder. Um, and a few days later there's a massive bonfire in his back garden. Whether or not there are lacking elements in the police investigation, you know, those elements together to me seem to be quite compelling. Couldn't both be true, though? Couldn't the police have been bungling Keystone cops and he could be guilty? Both things could be true. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that's the thing about this story. It's every truth or every time you think you find a truth, there's a flip side. So... Ian Bailey may be a domestic abuser and be proven to be. Does that make him a murderer? Hmm. Not necessarily. You know, he may be an unpopular person. Does that make him a murderer? Not necessarily. The guards may have messed up the investigation. Does that make him innocent? Not necessarily. You know, and I think it's that constant flip-flop between truth and misinformation and suspicion and just a sort of build of what is going on here Hmm. that's what makes it endlessly fascinating Marie Farrell is obviously a a central figure in this story she is the witness who claims that she saw Ian uh, in the middle of the night on a road while she was with a man whose identity she refused to disclose because he wasn't her husband then she says Ian Bailey threatened her uh, that if she talked he would you know he did the slashing motion across Mm -hmm. his throat allegedly and then later she recanted the whole statement, said he never threatened her, that, that, you know, that never happened. What do you make of this? Well, Marie's another interesting character. Um, we talked to her a lot during production. Um, that's to say our producer, Sarah Lambert, spoke to her a lot. And I think we find that the best thing that you can say about Marie is that she's proven herself to be an unreliable witness. Um you know, either way, she was telling lies at one point or another. So her first story was given to the guards unprompted. Um, and then, there, you know, there were allegations of the guards making more of that story than she wanted them to. But when she went to court, um, she was basically found to be unreliable. I can imagine a scenario in which... If the Garda were not doing a great job and if they really wanted a witness 
to sort of underline their main suspect in their theory, you know, it seems like there may have been some leverage there. I mean, mm-hmm. she she claims to have been with a man who wasn't her husband, although she says it was not a romantic relationship. It's just seems very complicated. It does seem like her unreliability could actually have been enhanced by the way this thing was investigated. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean... Bearing in mind, we still don't know who that man was. Yes. You know. Yeah. How, how, <laughs> how is it known that she didn't give the right name? How did that get figured out when she, uh, the man she said she was with the night of the murder was a lie? Right. How, how was that figured out? In the trial, um, she gave quite a generic Irish name. And she said that this was a man from Longford. Hmm. So they asked the registrar of sort of births, deaths and marriages to check records for this individual and guess what he didn't exist they could find no records so she had you know she gave a name the person didn't exist she said oh you know I think she said he might be in England or you know he might have died or da 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 but the uh the the registrar couldn't find any such person I'm very curious about the generic Irish name now like Seamus O'Malley something along those lines I mean basically She she named a man, I think she gave a name something very Irish, like John Riley or something like that. As someone married to a man named Kevin Flynn, I do love the idea okay. of, a, okay. so of, a, yeah. of a generic Irish name. Sean O'Shaughnessy, yeah. So, Suzanne, you know, there's a big shift in true crime documentaries right now that focus on wrongful convictions, uh, you know, bungled investigations that often happen in cases based largely on circumstantial evidence or police misconduct. Your case is interesting because, as we discussed, there is potentially some, if not misconduct, mistakes Yet, you're not talking about a wrongful conviction. You're talking about somebody who could be guilty, who was never even, like, given the process for us to find out for sure if he's guilty. He was tried in France but won't get extradited. So we have a man walking around who could be guilty. It's a very complicated wrench to throw in this wrongful conviction space. What do you think of that? Do you think that your story complicates that narrative? Do you think it adds something to that narrative? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it makes us stand out as, again, just just a really unusual story. I mean, if Ian Bailey is innocent, then his entire life has been defined by this murder that he didn't commit. If he's guilty, then he's a free man who should be in prison and it's leaving the family without the justice that they so desperately want. Um, so, you know, he has been convicted. He is a convicted killer, but only in France. But in Ireland, he's a free man. You know, you can imagine the compliance process on this series, you know, where we're liaising with with sort of three different sets of legal counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I think it would be great for him to have his day in court and be tried because that seems to be the one way to resolve it once and for all. Mm. And I believe that at the moment uh, he's been calling in the Irish press for the guards to reopen the investigation. Hmm. Because he believes that if it's reopened that the police's mistakes perhaps will just make him look more innocent or because he, you know, I keep finding myself wondering, you know, even if he did it, does, does part of him maybe believe he didn't? You know, he strikes me as that kind of yeah. a person. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm, I, yeah. I mean, that's something that we certainly talked about. You know, could it be that he did it and in a sort of blackout fit of rage 
um, and have convinced himself so completely that he didn't do it, that he now believes that to be true. Um, and I think without the sort of due process of a of a proper trial with him standing trial, there will always be questions to be asked. You know, his his lawyer was very robust about sort of the Irish legal system not recognising the trial in absentia in France. So I think a trial by jury would be a really good way to to finally find the truth. Do you think that there's any chance this documentary could have some impact on the case itself? Maybe somebody will watch it, remember something, or there'll be some other thing that could click into place as a result of this being in the world? I'd love it if that were the case. That would be amazing. Um, I don't know if that would be true. <laughs> you know, I think that the the story has pretty much wall-to-wall coverage in Ireland. And I think anyone who was in the locale at the time is very aware of it. So, you know, this this isn't a dead case that hasn't been in the public eye. It's, you know, a lot by Ian Bailey's own <laughs> self-promotion. It's been very much kept in the public eye. Your documentary is on Netflix, one of the biggest streaming platforms in the world. Millions and millions of people will watch it. And, you know, I do think it will appeal to people who love true crime, but there's a lot more here Mm -hmm. than just a crime. What are you hoping the millions of viewers who will watch and love this documentary take away from it? I hope that they come away feeling that they have a real sense of who Sophie was as a woman. And I hope that we've made her a three-dimensional character. And I hope that we've slightly shifted the the needle on true crime always or often sort of following the suspect and following the, the conviction story. I hope that we've put her right in the frame and, and at the front. I also think that the, the questions and thoughts that it raises about violence against women are really important. I hope it makes people stop and think about domestic violence and the sorts of responsibilities that we all have to each other. I remember her well. I actually remember Sophie sitting here in the bar, all was very low-key, sat there quietly, no bother to anybody. You've certainly brought it all back. Do you know, 24 years is a long time. And, uh, you know, the memory goes thin and it's hard to remember everything in detail. There's been court cases for libel, court cases for other things, and it's been known as the Bailey case ever since. And I think the focus has to go back to Sophie, the innocent victim of some terrible deed. Well, I do think that you brought those things forward. I also think that you added a lot to a story that a lot of people think they already know. I really enjoyed the documentary. Suzanne Lavery, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about it. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to executive producer Suzanne Lavery and a special thanks to the series director John Dower and producer Sarah Lambert. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. 
Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show to stay tuned for upcoming episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.